0: The Libyan Coast Guard was approaching during one uh, of the rescues. The people got so scared to get pushed back by them to Libya that they started jumping into the water so we had to literally pull people out of the water um, and some people almost drowned.
1: i had accused me of like emotionally blackmailing people when I spoke about the children or not believing they were children. Wow. For me, I believe this is a defense mechanism because, you know, we are able to provide pictures and videos and facts, like the work of CI has been very transparent. And
2: Welcome to the Frontline Defenders Rights on the Line podcast, presenting the voices, perspectives and experiences of human rights and human rights defenders across the globe. In this episode, we chat to two human rights defenders who were a part of the CI4 ship crew which rescued 408 people from 5 different refugee boats in distress in May 2021. Sophie Weidenhiller is from the German NGO CI, who works for the rescue of fleeing people in the central Mediterranean Sea. CI fights to protect the right to life by rescuing people from unseaworthy boats, looking for people in distress at sea and through search and rescue activities. Our second guest, Sara Sinkirova, is a Slovakian HRD journalist who writes on issues ranging from migration to human rights, humanitarian issues, women's rights and more. She has reported from about 15 different countries and has been published by BBC and The Guardian, among others. Sara and Sophie will speak on CI's most recent heart-wrenching humanitarian mission aboard the CI4 ship. As well as the experiences being targeted as human rights defenders for the sea rescue efforts and work.
0: Yes, hello everyone, and uh, thanks, Aisha, for having me. Um, my name is Sophie, and I work for an organization called CI. Uh, we are a German nonprofit organization. We work um, through donations and mostly with volunteers and we operate in the Central Mediterranean Sea. So I thought maybe not all of the listeners really know what the situation there is like, so I will try to briefly explain um, what we're doing and what the situation is so people understand what's going on. Um, So people are fleeing across the Central Mediterranean and this has been going on for years and since 2015, Um, at least 20,000 people have died trying to cross the Central Mid. Um, Although I also have to say the dark figures are probably much higher. This is just the confirmed cases of deaths. And the people who are fleeing are mostly um, migrants, refugees um, from uh, Africa. But uh, we've also seen people from, for example, Syria, from Palestine, from Bangladesh. And what's happening is these people mostly depart from North Africa, from, from the Libyan coast. And Libya, as you probably know, is still a country of civil war. Um, it, there's chaos there. It's, it's, there is no law and order there. And in Libya, there exist those um, detention camps for refugees where uh, mostly black refugees, um, but also other ones, are put into uh, into detention, where they face grave human rights violations. So they are tortured, they're abused, they're systematically um, maltreated. Um, and there's even slave trade going on, especially with black people there. Um, and so people, who are there, they flee mostly those circumstances, but of course, um, as is the case with flight in general, it's very complex. There's many reasons why people end up in Libya, Um, but once they're there, they really um, try to get out any way they can, because this is really the only option that they're left with to escape this hell that is Libya right now. And um, they try to cross using um, smugglers there who put them on on unseaworthy boats, um, that are overcrowded and uh, they put those people on there um, often without life jackets, without enough fuel, without without enough food and water and supplies. So this is um, basically extremely dangerous for the people, that is why so many drown, also a lot of them can't even swim. and. Um, the EU has ceased its uh, search and rescue operations um, in this area years ago, and that's where NGOs like us stepped in to fill this gap. And we thought that we would only have to do this short term and that the EU would finally realize that they have to start search and rescue operations again, but so far nothing has happened. Um, Instead, what's happening right now is that the EU border protection agency, Frontex, is actually conducting um, or being complicit in illegal pushbacks, where the people are being pushed back by the so-called Libyan Coast Guard, who then directly bring the refugees back to these horrible detention centers. And it's a whole vicious cycle of violence that the EU is um, knowingly participating in. And that is why um, we are trying to, um, first of all, prevent people from drowning, when they're trying to cross um, over the med. And also, we're trying to, of course, prevent pushbacks and bring people to a safe
2: um, port instead. Okay, thank you so much for shedding light on the very important work that you're doing. And Sada, do you want to tell us um, how you ended up joining CI's mission and, and what was your role aboard that mission, specifically as a volunteer?
1: Yes, of course. So, um, I'm Sara Sankarova. I'm, I'm an independent uh, journalist. I'm a freelance journalist and I mostly cover human rights and women's rights and humanitarian um, issues. Um, as a journalist and and human rights researcher, I've worked in many different countries around the world. Um, I've reported from various countries, including Belarus and Venezuela and Greece and Ukraine, Burkina Faso, um, Burundi, Uganda and many, many more. And in the recent years, I've been um, focusing on covering migration and migration across the Mediterranean in particular and I have been working on a body of work um, focused around um, the stories of pregnant women, um, pregnant refugees who um, tried to cross the Mediterranean during pregnancy, so I've collected now I think it's maybe dozens of testimonies of different women who had crossed the Mediterranean and not just um, not just through the central mediterranean the so-called central mediterranean route from libya to italy or malta but also along different routes the western mediterranean the eastern mediterranean and i'm currently also writing a um, chapter about this um, for a monograph um, about social justice Um, so you know i've i've been really trying to cover these issues relating to human rights violations um, around the world and particularly um, in the Mediterranean and really you know I see my role as a journalist to um, not just to um, to bear witness to history but also to really investigate the human rights violations that are happening particularly against particularly vulnerable groups and also you know to stand in solidarity or you know show that you're a journalist and you are there to monitor and to tell these stories and um, I, uh, I've, I've really wanted to um, be able to um, attend a sea rescue mission as a journalist um, particularly to, to also understand a bit better what the situation is like because we do have many reports, we, there's a lot of NGOs that are involved now in sea rescue and I've collected a lot of testimonies and obviously trying to figure out the data and the numbers um, and I thought that this this mission attending this mission as a journalist um, on board and documenting everything would also help me with that work and we will probably speak about the mission um later on but it was it was one of the most um i think intense missions that ci had ever seen and as a journalist but also as a human rights defender we have seen i mean we have seen so much pain and 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 so many tragedies when we Um, you know, attended to these boats that were left abandoned, you know, in the middle of the Mediterranean, sometimes in in the middle of the night, and we were able to rescue 150 children as well. So it it was an incredible mission, both as a journalist, but also, you know, in in those moments as a member of, of the crew, um providing assistance to these people and trying to understand their stories and and collect their testimonies.
2: Let's pick up a little bit from there in terms of you speaking about the you know the mission and I mean you guys have said this is one of the biggest you know refugee and migrant missions that you have carried out. What exactly happened on this mission and what were some of the challenges that you faced?
0: Um, so the, the ci four are um, our new vessel is um, bigger and better equipped than our previous vessels were um, and we did this specifically because we faced a lot of um, challenges uh, with detentions and things like that in Italy but more on that later and um, I mean she is a, a perfect rescue vessel um, and again she's, she's quite large, she's um, 53 meters long. Um, and we set out for the central Mediterranean, um, like we always do. We had our search and rescue lookout watches where we were um, looking for boats, but uh, we didn't have to look very far because um, very soon after we arrived um, in the so-called search and rescue zone, um, where boats are usually spotted, we got um, you know distress calls um, of boats in distress. Um, that we received from, for example, another NGO uh, alarm phone, and also um, we we just quickly realized, okay, um, the situation is still, you know, really, really bad in the Med. I mean, um, the numbers are not decreasing. The only thing that we've seen is that the um, the cases of people who die in the Med because there are no ships present, uh, no rescue ships, that that number is rising. Um, And so we had a lot of cases basically I can say this time. Um, I mean, for example, during my last mission with our old trip, um, we had one rescue um, and then we had to return. And this time we had a total of seven cases. Uh, We had six rescues and we had five rescues in less than 20 hours which is, um, I mean, pretty incredible. You know, we had 408 people in total that we rescued. And like Sarah said, among them 150 uh, minors and children, we had pregnant women, we had medical emergencies. And really, um, I mean, also to explain, maybe Sarah was um, crude as a journalist. So she was on the mothership the whole time. And she was also taking great care of, of the people because she wasn't just there for reporting. She also actually was involved in the rescue operation and, and taking care of the people once um, we brought them aboard um, and i was on the rib that's a rigid hull inflatable boat so th- these are the rescue boats that we use um, to approach the refugee boats um, and to transfer the people from the um, from our rescue boats to our mothership so that's how it generally works and um, so i was on there as a rib communicator and uh, my job was to you know, communicate with the people to calm them down because what happens a lot of times is that people get scared that, that we might, you know, take them back to Libya where they where they were fleeing from and they get scared um, and sometimes they, they jump in the water. Which also happened when, um, for example, the Libyan Coast Guard was approaching during one Uh, Of the rescues. The people got so scared to get pushed back by them to Libya that they started jumping into the water so we had to literally pull people out of the water um, and some people almost drowned um, during that rescue because they were so scared um, and because they panicked. Um, And so it it was just very, um, to sum it up, (laughs) exhausting and it was a lot and um, it just goes to show how much we are really needed there or how much Um, you know suffering is happening there and that that I mean what we do is so necessary but it's still not enough we still would need more ships we would need like um, a really a joint European rescue effort to prevent all those deaths because yes we have rescued 408 people but during that same time 600 people were um, illegally pushed back by uh, Frontex and the Libyan Coast Guard in, in cooperation, and also many people drowned. And just recently, um, uh, we heard again a- about another case of, of people drowning close to Lampedusa, etc. So the situation is really dramatic; it's dire. And um, but I still want to say that, um, of course, the last mission of the CI4 was um, it was a good mission because um, for me it was very successful because we were able to rescue everybody alive. We didn't have any um, you know dead people, no one. Uh, we had, like I said, we had one medical evacuation um, of a man with uh, severe um, heart disease. Um, but other than that everybody survived and that really is for me the most um, important thing, but it, it for sure was extremely intense. Um, for example, we had also one rescue that happened during the night. Um, and just a lot of dangerous situations which is why I'm so grateful that everything um, went well and that we were able to um, rescue everyone and bring everyone on land um, safely so yeah maybe sarah you also want to share your perspective
2: now yeah I'd love to hear some of your perspectives Sarah. and just from hearing you speak about this mission it's it's like something that, could be unfathomable, unfathomable to many people unless you know you're getting it from from someone who's actually been there sort of like a war on the water is what you're talking about
1: absolutely um so as sophie mentioned i was um i was working on the uh, mothership so i was on the ci4 uh while sophie and other rescuers uh were actually pulling people out of uh, the water and out of the wooden boats and bringing them um, with the ribs to our ship and that's where I was and that's where the medical team and and uh, other crew members had been so I, I had seen you know the the, the other perspective as well at, at the same time and it was it was um, equally um, dramatic um, because Well, first of all, um, as Sophie said, you know, rescuing 408 people who all made it out alive and healthy. When you think back, it is a small miracle, right? Because so many things could have gone wrong and we've had so many dramatic situations. But in the end, it was a small miracle. However, the way it unfolded was certainly very intense. Um, I remember um, so as a journalist I've been also trying to monitor the times of the rescues so um, after we had rescued um, two people and later found a, a empty boat um, a couple of hours um, later we we've had this um, set of um, five rescues that had hap- happened within less than 20 hours um, and and during these rescues we've we've um, brought aboard 406 people. And so the first one of these rescues happened on the 16th of May at uh, 3.06pm when we spotted what we thought could be two refugee boats in distress that were still quite far away from us. And we had also seen a a Libyan vessel, a Libyan um, coast guard vessel that has been um, very close to us and p- was particularly one of the reasons why some of, some of the people on the two refugee boats um, jumped in the water out of the stress um, and fear of being deported back to Libya because they were so afraid of, of the coast guards. And so, so um, after 3pm we started rescuing people from the two boats in distress. Um, bringing aboard 177 people in about maybe two or three hours of time Um, on the mothership. The situation really um, looked like an emergency situation. I remember that many people had fainted from those first two boats um, out of stress out of pain, dehydration uh, many were injured so I remember we were um, just just um, bringing them to the uh, hospital ward aboard the ship with where three medical members of the medical team were working at their full capacity and we, we kept bringing these people who had fainted on the uh, shovel stretchers or rescue blankets and bringing them to the hospital and um, I remember um, a man who was brought aboard and he, he started praying he was in a very very deep state of prayer and really thanking God and thanking us for saving his life and that was the first thing you know the people told us was like you, you just saved our lives we thought we were going to die and, um, you know, so, so what we were trying to do on that on deck in those moments was to show everyone that this is a place of safety, make sure that people can sit down, that we can, you know, register them to, to, to make sure how you know, to c- collect the numbers and, and um, make sure that uh, we like we have a list. We know how many people we had rescued and make sure that everyone can see a doctor and uh, cover the people in in rescue blankets because most of them were drenched they were soaked in water we also rescued many children who you know in children hypothermia can be very dangerous so we've been you know paying particular attention to children our youngest children was an eight-month-old baby that was on one of those first um, two wooden boats that we had rescued so Um, It was very, very busy and then um, when we thought um, we had um, finished with our first two rescues we found out um, around 5pm that afternoon that um, the Pilote Volontaire, a humanitarian plane, had spotted another refugee boat in distress with um, around 50 more people on board so uh, we changed the course, we altered the course and of course, we we went um, to rescue fifty more people. Among these people, again, there were children. There were many, many accompanied minors. Um, you know, I will I will not forget the looks on their on their faces. They were they were terrified. They were they were shocked. Um, And then after this rescue, uh, we've had one more night rescue and then another rescue uh, the next morning. Um, So within less than 20 hours, we had to treat all these people um, and bringing everyone to to a place of safety. We had also had one um, eight year old child among um, the rescued persons who was suffering from severe dehydration and you know the medical t- the medical team said he could have died if he had stayed longer on the um, wooden boat but as I was saying you know it, it was a small miracle everyone survived um, everyone got better and we've managed to save that total of, of 408 persons.
2: Wow as I'm listening to you speak this mission sounds emotionally intensive it sounds physically intensive and I have to ask how does CI and how does how do all the volunteers aboard the ship um, manage their own well-being? You know, in context of the mission that's being carried out, um, maybe you want to speak on that, um, Sophie.
0: Yes, so um, that's it's a little bit also my field um, because I am a psychotherapist in training, so obviously um, <laughs> I do uh, think and talk a lot about uh, mental health as well. Um, I'm a human being, and I also have, you know, political and ethical um, views, and I do think that I have a certain uh, responsibility for what's going on there as a European citizen, um, as a therapist, as a woman, as a human being, you know. And I just want to be um, an ally to the people who are literally dying there, you know. So I think, first of all, my mental health, my personal mental health, um, just comes second, but for me. Um, the hardest part isn't being on a mission itself, because there I can I can be helpful, or at least I hope I'm helpful, you know, I, I can rescue people and then talk to those people, I can hug them, I can even sometimes laugh with them, talk to them, um, listen to their stories, and this really is, um, this isn't the moment where I feel bad, um, the moments where I feel worse is when I come back and I sit here alone and I can't do anything, you know, I see those messages um, and notifications about shipwrecks, about people dying, um, and I feel powerless and I feel like, you know, I can't do enough to stop it. And that's actually the hardest part, not being um, on the ship itself. And um, like I said, I also think that, um, and I I noticed that it's really important to also talk about um, the rescue peoples, mental health and their psychological problems because I think that's very often overlooked how traumatic that is and these people have usually um, been through so much trauma that started usually in their country of origin and then uh, they've been through the worst imaginable horrors in Libya and then they, you know, almost die trying to get to safety and then even when they arrive in Europe, they are treated sometimes subhuman. they face racism, you know, they don't get proper Um, medical care including psychological help Um, and I think that's something that we really need to keep in mind because it's not just about the the acute stress and pain that people are in but there's also things like and I've talked to Sarah about this a lot of times is the uh, generational and transgenerational trauma um, and what that means for for our future and for um, the future of these people and these children and um, I mean even pregnant women imagine you're pregnant and you uh, you go through all of this, it has an effect on the child, it has an effect on the mother, and on entire future generations. And that's something that I think also nobody talks about. Um, except for Sarah and me, we talk a lot about this, which is something that is very helpful. It's just talk to people um, who care um, and who understand and just share your thoughts and feelings, just like we're doing right now. You know, this is why, again, I appreciate um, coming here and, and I thank everyone for listening to this because it's a it's a very good feeling to know that there's still people out there who do care when there's so many people out there who just apparently don't care
2: yeah no you definitely made um definitely made some important points and one of my other questions was once you know you carry out rescue missions um where does the process end where does CI's mission end and and is there any follow-up after that Um, in terms of, you know, the people that you have rescued, and and how is that managed?
0: Okay, maybe I'll start about the the formal process, and then Sarah can uh, maybe share some of the stories of of our survivors. Um, So technically, the way it works when you have a a rescue case, when you rescue someone from distress at sea, is that you then also have to bring them to a so-called place of safety. So that means a port in which they don't face um, any, you know, danger, immediate danger, like the grave human rights violations that, for example, we see in Libya, but that also happen in Tunisia and and other ports in the vicinity. So basically, the only place where we can bring people, um, where we know that they will be safe or safe enough, is is Europe, our European ports. And there, the rule goes um, as follows, is that you bring people to the closest port, Obviously, right. So you wouldn't bring people to, for example, a German port, which would take two to three weeks, right, where people are still um, subjected to so much um, to so much uh, stress. So you you have to bring them to safety as soon as possible um, to a safe port in that is, you know, in the closest vicinity. That's usually Italy or Malta. And um, uh, during our last mission, we were in the Maltese SAR zone at that one point, and um, Malta just didn't respond. They denied their responsibilities. Basically, they said it's, it's not on us to assign you a port, so they didn't assign a support. And that's the other thing, Um, the maritime rescue coordination centers have to assign us a port. So we can't just randomly go to whatever port we choose. We have to um, wait for the assignment of the port. And if the authorities don't assign us a port, what happens is that we're basically stranded because we don't know where we can go. And this is what's been happening a lot. Um, And that's where these so-called standoffs um, are coming into play. So sometimes we're basically trapped all together on this ship for days and sometimes even weeks. Uh And it's of course very hard for the people because they don't understand why we can't go to port and it's very hard to explain to them because (laughs) what should we tell them, right? Uh Um, So usually after days, I think in in our case, it was uh, four or five days. Um, But at some point uh, we have to get a port assigned, right? Because we can't stay out there forever. So the authorities assign us a port and then we go there. And then, um, I mean, especially during the last mission, since it was, of course, during a pandemic, um, all of the people were tested for coronavirus. Um, then they disembarked. Oh, wow. And then some of them, um, they went to a uh, quarantine ferry that was docked mm-hmm. next to us. And the vulnerable people, the most vulnerable people, so uh, families, children, pregnant women, they were brought to um, a center in the somewhere in the city. Mm-hmm. And that's... Um, like the formal process of, of how that works. And then usually um, what they should do is they, they should try to um, apply for asylum. Um, and then, yeah, it's it, it differs depending on, of course, where the people come from and um, what they apply for, um, et cetera. But um, I think Sarah also has some more information about uh, what would happen to the rescue people afterwards. Sure, do you want to come in there, Sarah?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, as a journalist, I've been monitoring and conducting interviews with the rescued persons. And also, you know, while I was on board, I was trying to show them that, um, you know, I care as as a journalist and as a human being. Um, And so many of the people had wanted to stay in touch with me, particularly many of the women and children. Um, Also, because I speak French and many of our rescued women came from um, sub Saharan French speaking countries. Um so I'm in touch with about a dozen of people, um and, you know, I've received so many messages of, you know, of thank you and thank you for saving our lives and, you know, so much love, really, people people are really um expressing so much um gratitude for for being alive because they all say we, we would have been dead without you. Um, a woman uh, we had rescued um, sent me a letter where she described um, all the difficulties she's been through. She told me that prior to the crossing they had to wait um, by the seaside in Libya and because the boat was overcrowded they had to um, fast, they they were fasting because they, they wanted to um, diminish their body weight, they wanted to reduce their weight and so they were only drinking water for a few days and and then, you know, she embarked on the on the boat and and she wrote to me and she said, I you know, we all thought we would die and um by by saving us it's it is as though you had saved humanity the entire humanity and in terms of what is happening with these people now is that um, we, after we uh, disembarked um, our human rights observer on board uh, was in touch I think with the UNHCR so we knew from there that they would be in quarantine, that the vulnerable people, the mothers and children would be staying um, in a centre where they would have access to medical and psychological care and that uh, all of our people would probably apply for asylum. Um, I know that they had not all stayed in Italy, so some left or were transferred to other countries. Some are in refugee camps, but um, all the people that I had spoken to, um, despite you know, the, the difficult practical situations they are in, because many of them are alone and they don't know anyone in Europe, Um, They are all safe, um, they are all healthy, they are all alive and really very grateful that we had saved their lives. So that probably sums it up for me.
2: And one more question in terms of, uh, you know, managing the disembarkment and also aboard the Sea Rescue Mission. How does CI or how do you guys approach that language barrier? I mean, we do try to um, always
0: have people aboard who speak um, several languages. We um, we always try to have people who speak French, like Sarah. <laughs> um, I mean, best case scenario, also Arabic, but um, unfortunately, it's sometimes very hard to um, crew people who also speak um, speak Arabic well, but in this mission we had someone who, who spoke a bit of Arabic, and um, also it's a bit hard because you never really know what kind of nationalities you will have. So um mm. for example um we had people from like i said syria palestine bangladesh um sub-saharan yeah. african countries various countries so there's so many different languages that it's, it's kind of hard to um, you know find yeah. someone who speaks everything but on the other hand i have to say i mean it's it's quite surprising how much you can say without actually speaking the same language Definitely. Um, for example i use a lot of body language i use a yes. lot of um, looking into people's eyes or, or making mm-hmm. jokes, and it, it's incredible um, for mm-hmm. me to see like even if you have so little in common with other people as to like the way you grew up, what you're used to, which language you speak, and all that, but still, you can laugh about the same jokes you know, even yeah. without speaking the same language mm-hmm. and it's it's just incredible. I mean it somehow it always works, and then also the the rescue people are usually very helpful in that they will help translate for us. Mm-hmm. And
2: you know, just be an interpreter for for their peers. So, yeah. Okay. So I want to kind of move on, on to, you know the targeting of of the targeting of HRTs in terms of the work that you do. So I'm going to cross over to Sada and ask. Um, you've been writing about migrant and refugee issues for quite a while, and specifically this mission. Can you tell us a little bit about the threats and the harassment that you've been facing as a result of writing about this.
1: Yes, so as a human rights journalist, you know, the online harassment um, and also in some countries, you know, the problems with the authorities, this is something that I think all human rights defenders face around the world, Um, obviously depending on, on uh, on, on, on the country and on the press freedom and you know democracy kind of index of 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 that country um for me personally um i had been confronted with this many times um, and it's i think part of being um, a journalist and particularly investigating human rights violations so I'm originally from Slovakia and I, I mostly write in English and and uh, I'm mostly kind of I mostly work internationally but um, because um, I think it's very important to speak about these issues in Slovakia and in the Czech Republic I also published a lot of stories here and I've done a lot of podcasts and streams and I have to say I had never experienced um, this amount of of hate and harassment and trolling um so this is not on the part of the authorities um i, I had so far you know I, I, have, I haven't been confronted by any authorities it's more people online who are um I, I don't even know how to say it maybe full of 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 hate or or really um I can't even speak to their position, um, you know, with regard to the Mediterranean, but I was very surprised um, because essentially what I did in my stories was a bit like I did in this podcast. I described my experiences, I collected the numbers, the people, the stories, the rescue operations, um, you know, combined with videos and pictures and obviously as a journalist trying to really um you know stick to the facts and and be able to kind of confirm everything that i say um and yet it would seem particularly in slovakia and in the czech republic that people either do not understand or do not want to see this so after i had published one big story for 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 one of the biggest newspapers here i received maybe about 15 emails like straight away after the publication of the stories um, insulting me, telling me that um, you know the 150 children we've rescued are not children but they think they are grown-ups and that these people will um, come to Europe and will potentially rape women somebody wrote to me on Twitter and said you know these people are less than monkeys um, which I, I think is really horrendous to, to hear, you know, somebody saying they are less evolved than monkeys. Another person wow. wrote to me and, sa- and said these people are all thieves um, and would you believe a thief who told you that uh, they, they hadn't stolen anything, they are still a thief and yet you are bringing this, these people to Europe. And people um, really just telling me that that I'm essentially a criminal and that I should be in prison. And s- so there's been hundreds and hundreds of comments like these on social networks, and um, and I've received a lot um, on my personal email address. And um, also I've I've received um, uh, maybe I could say a little bit of trolling on on the. Um, on twitter and in english as well from from people you know who who speak english so who who i imagine are not from slovakia telling me that you know uh, it's obvious that somebody had googled me and said you know you are in your safe country slovakia that doesn't want to accept refugees and yet you brought all these people to europe and and you know when they will be harming our women, um, our European women, and assaulting them while you will be in your safe country, Slovakia, with no refugees. Um, so I've been receiving this um, continuously yeah. and it certainly is very sad. And for me, what, what really shocked me was that amount of, um, that, that, that situation of, of total disconnect. For example, mm-hmm. when I did some live streams about this, And, you know, I was saying, um, look, this is, you know, a boy we had rescued and he almost died. He was eight year old. And people were not listening at all. They kept saying these are thieves and they will harm us and they will rape us and you're a criminal. And I was saying, look, this is a baby we had rescued and look, this is a pregnant woman who was raped (coughs) herself and who was crying and... Yet people were not listening to that at all and they kept on going with that kind of discourse full of hate, which was incredibly sad to me, you know, it's, it's yeah. wor- worse than the harassment was the feeling mm. of how sad this, this is on the part of the people who have no empathy. Yeah.
2: I think it's, it speaks so much to broader issues definitely of xenophobia and of racism, you know, that it's still deeply embedded there. And how do you, yeah, how do you respond to that?
1: So I, I haven't uh, responded. I, you know, I'm always open to to discuss things as as long as people, you know, ask questions or discuss politely. Mm. Um, but I have to say that the emails I had received, they were mostly anonymous and mm. they came from very kind of strange email addresses. Mm. And obviously there's been a lot of hate comments um, on Twitter and Facebook, but I haven't engaged in those discussions and it it certainly was very hurtful to read it. Um, As I was saying, not as much uh, in terms of my own well-being but particularly because as you said it raises a broader issue and it's really frightening actually to see this amount of xenophobia or racism or or hate Mm. or uh, disrespect um, and more especially because really you know Um, some people had accused me of like emotionally blackmailing people when I spoke about the children or not believing they were children for me I believe this is a defense mechanism because you know we are able to provide pictures and videos and facts like the work of CI has been very transparent and Mm. obviously you know when when uh, (laughs) I was on the ship and we were cooking you know the baby food and and you know and you give it out to 20 babies we've had on board and very small children there is no doubt that these are children and you know and and w- we can also like back that up without showing people's faces and mm-hmm. yet people would not believe that they were they were still in that kind of racist discourse uh, mm-hmm. focused around how these people are potentially dangerous and not willing to listen at all that among these people so many kind vulnerable people mm. but also you know all the other people who were not babies or pregnant women you know that they, they are innocent right they they hadn't done anything to mm. us and we don't have any proof and yet people were embedded in you know and in, in like their comments were in, in embedded you know with with hate and and mm. disrespect
2: Sophie do you want to tell us about how is is received in the public and you know, does CI receive any public pushback and how are they treated by authorities, um, both in, you know, Italy, I know you said the ship is detained, um, but also in Germany? Yes,
0: so um, we definitely have a lot of enemies (laughs) as well. Um, We also, of course, receive a lot of hate mail and hate posts, especially on social media because people are really, I mean, when they don't have to show their faces, you know, um, there's a lot that people um, say you know it, it feels like they have no shame anymore you know they feel like they can say anything and it's just horrible um, I also had this experience I gave an interview once to a big um, Austrian newspaper and there were 900 comments under this article and 98% of them were negative negative. Um, and they were saying I mean the same things wow. that that Sarah mentioned mm-hmm. um, and also which was uh, of course quite interesting they were also attacking me personally um, especially mm-hmm. I think also cuz I'm a woman you know they were attacking my looks uh, even you know where I'm like what what do my looks have to do with C-Risk even with this political issue right but it's just mm-hmm. they, they use anything anyway they tr- they just deliberately try to hurt you and upset you but honestly I don't even read most of those comments I'm um, I i do not engage with that trolling um, mm-hmm. I'm always willing to have an open discussion but I feel like with with these people and these trolls you know mm. Um, mm. it doesn't it doesn't uh, make any sense and I don't want to give these people a platform I also don't like r- um, repeating what they said but yes um, we've had a lot of horrible comments and even one time there was a very interesting case there's um, this German politician called uh, Georg Pazeski from the um, far far extreme right-wing party um, of the AFD in Germany and he uh, falsely uh, accused uh, accused us um, knowing full well that the the facts don't support this um, so he knew at this time that he was lying but he publicly stated and, and accused us of uh, bringing terrorists to Europe to Europe wow. when this tragedy mm-hmm. in NHTSA happened and <coughs> it, it just I mean it w- after that it, our emails you know they just blew up mm. and everybody was attacking yeah, us from true. like all sides and it was um, Yeah, it was pretty crazy, and and even, like, real threats. Mm. And um, this could potentially be quite dangerous also because there are um, active um, fascists and Nazi groups Mm. in Germany Mm. who who do attack people and even kill people. um, So, yeah, we we sued him, actually, and we won the lawsuit. And um, the other thing is that the authorities, um, they, you know, prosecute us. Um, I mean, I think you've, you've already talked to Juventa as well, right, and um, many other NGOs, they face a lot of problems with being criminalized, which is insane, I mean, if you think about it, to be criminalized for saving lives, that's, um, I mean, it's it's pretty absurd. No one would, um, you know, sue a paramedic for just doing their work. I mean, we do nothing else than that, just we do it on at sea, right. Um, and uh, the latest um, trend, so to speak, of what the governments are doing or how they are trying to stop us from, uh, from conducting sea rescue is that they put the ships um, in detention. Um, this is a very bureaucratic way of doing it. Um, mm. So they're not uh, suing us or anything. They're using a tool that is actually a very um, a good thing for the ship industry, which is under the Paris um, MOU. There are authorities in Italy who um, have the right to check ships if they um, really adhere to all the safety regulations Mm. and environmental regulations so that there is, for example, no ships that are polluting the sea or that don't respect, um, Mm. you know, working laws for their workers and things like that. So it's technically a good thing, right? But it's being abused. It's being abused to um detain rescue ships and to keep them in port as long as possible so that they can't go out and rescue people and that's what's happening at the moment um it has happened to our old vessel the alan kurdi twice last year and she was detained for months um at a time and we had to actually sue um, the italians to get the ship free again and now with the new ship we were hoping that since we Changed a lot of the things that they accused us of doing, which was really technical, tiny little bureaucratic things. And we improved on that and we, we changed that. But still, soon as we came to um, ports in Italy, they detained us again. Um, and now we have the same problem with a with new ship that we can't go out because we're detained. And this is really um, a problem because, like I said, there aren't a lot of ships out there anyway. And they're Mm. constantly uh, detaining the ships after they they come to port. And because it's not happening just to us, it's happening to all the NGO ships all the time. And we're really trying to find a solution for this because, um, I mean, while we're in port, there are people dying every day out there and this just,
2: we can't let that happen. So this definitely as a obviously a negative impact on on your work. And in terms of getting the ships back to you, you know, are you at the mercy of Italian authorities, or is there any is there any kind of legal action that you guys take in the meanwhile in order to you know to get the ships back quicker, or is it just sort of a waiting game? Yeah, we've tried the legal way in the past.
0: We've tried it twice, and um, we can't always <laughs> sue our way out of this. Right, this is not. Um, it, this is not a good way um, to do things and that's why we've now um, we're in talks with the Italians actually and we're trying to find a solution together because also um, we have to say that it's, it's not necessarily um, the Coast Guard or the officers that work there that are so against us some of them actually do support us but the problem is um, the top level and the, the politicians it's it's the mm-hmm. um, you know, it, it, it's the ministries. It's mm-hmm. um, it, it's it's the politicians. It's the leaders, basically. Yeah. yeah. So that's the problem. How do you reach um, the politicians? How do you make those policies change? Because mm-hmm. um, you know, even if there's a Coast Guard officer that that actually wants to support us, uh, um, maybe their hands are tied because you know they have yeah. orders from higher places. Yeah. Um so we're also trying to advocate as much as we can um for sea rescue but it's um it's mm. it's tough and yeah. politicians are pretty heartless
2: <laughs> from what we can <laughs> see. <laughs> Definitely. Okay, that brings me to kind of uh towards the end of, of the podcast and wanting to ask, you know, both of your thoughts on, on what can be done at the broader level. You know, what do we need to see to change the situation for refugees and And the management of receiving refugees you know in european countries and just in terms of the broader context
0: yeah so just um again from um from my point of view as part of a sea rescue organization there's like um we can discuss this on small scale and and big scale solutions right so to be really practical about this the first thing that states can do and this is very easy is to just stop Blocking our ships and stop um, hindering us and just letting us do our work, right? That's, that's the easiest thing to do, very practically speaking. Um, the second thing would be a European search and rescue effort, you know, a, a dedicated European search and rescue mission, European ships that have the mandate to rescue people, not just Frontex trying to quote unquote protect our borders, right? Um, also, stopping the co- cooperation with the so called Libyan Coast Guards, because the Libyan Coast Guard. Um, is massively financed by the EU you know they are providing them with money with um, with uh, you know uh, all sorts of um, equipment and trainings and all of that right so that needs to stop because we know that in Libya there are gross human rights violations so we need to stop collaborating with Libya um, we also need to do something about Libyan detention centers I mean this is not something that uh, that we should support as the European Union, we have to mm. stop that. It's horrible what's happening there. Um, so we can't cooperate with these people as long as the circumstances don't don't change, right? And there was this Berlin conference just recently, but um, as always, you know, human rights are at the very bottom of the list, and and mm. <laughs> there are really no no changes happening um, at all. Um, and the last thing is that, of course, this is a very, as you said, it's a big and a complex um, topic. Um, so, of course, the goal will be to create a world in which people don't even have to flee their homes in the first place. But this is a very big task. Mm-hmm. And for me, what's most frustrating is that sometimes people think that the, we lack the money to help refugees, or we lack the, the means and the, the resources and the strategies, but that's not true. The money is there. for example, the money goes to Libya. The money goes to war zones, you know um, The resources, the strategies, all of that's there. There are so many smart people who are working on this who can provide solutions. They're just not being asked and employed to do that. So what the problem is is that the political will is missing. you know our politicians? Mm-hmm. They're doing this on purpose because they they want to stop migration, which you cannot do, it's impossible. They want to um, ward off Europe and create a fortress, which is also Mm. not possible, uh, especially not without gun violence um, Mm. as a last Mm. consequence. And so the political will has to change and we also need to adhere to the laws that already exist, the Geneva Convention, the Human Rights Convention, Mm. um, maritime law. Human. Those are all things that exist, but still, these rights are violated on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. So I think that's the main thing that, um, yeah, that mm-hmm. needs to change. We need to be more, more human, yeah. basically. Thank Sarah. You. Do you want to add something? <laughs>
1: Yeah, I think, Sophie, you, you've said it beautifully, you've, you've named um, all the problems. Maybe I would uh, add a couple of, of things. One is that it's not just you know the Libyan Coast Guard that has been receiving so much money from the EU, but it's also the other countries and not just the EU neighboring countries like Turkey or Morocco, but also other countries like Niger. Um, You know, the money that is supposedly uh, meant to be used as border control management but oftentimes there are severe human rights violations, um, some of which I, you know, went to investigate as a journalist and the EU authorities and the authorities in general turn a blind eye. So, you know, there is a problem with the way we think about migration, um, about, you know, how we consider or how we don't consider these people as humans or or, or even as numbers because we don't even know the data of how many people exactly drown and as one of the humanitarian doctors that I had interviewed pointed out she said these people are less than a number Um, so we really I think we need to change something about the way we think you know about the deeply ingrained structures of our thinking I think we, we need to realize um, that these people are, are, are people just like us. And, you know, the hate comments I've received, they speak to a larger issue, which is that the which is the fact that for some people these people are kind of dehumanized or you know, they dehumanize them or imagine them as some kind of criminals or thieves when really we don't see the story behind that person. So we really I think need to bring more humanity and more empathy into the into our our thinking and really consider these people as, as humans and create humane policies that respect everyone's basic human rights and, you know, notably their right to life.
2: Thank you so much for that. I think that last point that you made is so super important that the world cannot see refugees as you know, as other. You know, they refugees are not other, they are they are equal. We are all human.
0: Yeah. Um I think Sarah just um explained it we need to be more human and I think um we just also need to call it You know what it is it's it's racism basically Mm -hmm. that's happening here and it was very interesting to see that last year with all the black lives matter movement how everybody in Europe was like pointing a finger to America and saying oh my god look at what you're doing to black people and I was sitting here thinking um you guys (laughs) look at Mm -hmm. what we are doing to black people and Mm -hmm. to people of color because it I mean let's face it these are not white tourists who are in distress at sea because if it were white tourists who were in distress at sea we would spend Everything mm. we have to mm. rescue them, and we've seen this that um, you mm. know when, whenever there were white people in distress at sea they you know th- yeah. they get rescued mm-hmm. um, with tremendous effort and money behind it. Um, but I mean if we're being frank here, these are black people and people of color who are fleeing from from you know hellish circumstances and we're deliberately willingly and knowingly letting them drown just to prevent mm. them. From reaching europe and uh, this is horrible and this is on all of us and i i think i mean personally speaking i think that as a european citizen it is our um, responsibility to do something against it and whether mm-hmm. it be going on a ship or it's just advocating and talking about it and and you know voting for the right parties um it we need everyone to really join us and to really make a difference mm-hmm. um so like you said yes you can apply with uh, with us for sure um, we have a website, it's um, c-i.org. Um, there's also an English version um, and you can apply there or you can also, of course, um, if if you have some some <laughs> money to give or you know someone who's really rich mm-hmm. and wants to get rid of his money, mm-hmm. you know, always welcome. Um, mm-hmm. Just go to the website, you will find all the infos there. We're also on social media, Twitter, etc. Um, but the most important thing, I just th- think, is to stay persistent, to stay allowed, to not give up, and to to, um, talk about this issue with people. I've realized that so many people outside of my bubble, you know, they don't even realize what's going on. They don't even know. Mm -hmm. I mean, 832 people have died this year. That's more than five people each day that die in the mid, and this just needs to Mm. stop. Mm. And um, yeah, it's it's a joint effort. We need everybody um, and any help that we can get to face this
2: problem together. Okay. Thank you. Thank you so much. Saida, do you have any last
1: thoughts? No, I think we've said it all. It's it's uh, really Sophie just said it all. And, you know, thank you for giving us the opportunity to speak about this. And, yeah, that, yeah I think that, that that's it for me. Thank you. All right.
2: Yeah,
0: Thank you so much. And thanks to everyone who supports us and supports human rights defenders. Thank you.